This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Confined Space Scenarios. Operation Pedro Pan. Mid-50s Science Fiction Cinema. And The Affair of the Cards. Did you know that both of us, Ken and Robin, have written books and games for Atlas Games? This month, they're featuring products by us on sale. We're so honored. Atlas Games is doing a special for our listeners only. Use coupon code KENANDROBIN23, that's spell out A-N-D in Ken and Robin, to save 20% on your games and books at atlas-games.com. Like Robin's action-packed feng shui and conspiracy-drenched over the edge. Or Ken's mini-mythos series of Cthulhu-themed children's books, like Goodnight Azathoth and Clifford the Big Red God. So who writes our banter in these Atlas ads? Our good friend Michelle Nephew. Sometimes I think the power goes to her head a little. Like last month where she had me singing Christmas carols for Weird Little Elf? Yeah, I kind of noticed that. Yeah, this month Atlas Games is running a sale on products that two of us have written for them. But what does that have to do with me repeating, Michelle is a goddess and we bow before her greatness? Her script cues are even worse. I can't stop hitting myself. Ken, just because it's in the script notes doesn't mean you have to actually slap yourself. It's it's audio. It's a podcast. Our listeners can't see you. I don't feel so good. The things we do for our listeners. But at least this month, they're getting 20% off on books and games written by the two of us. Just head over to atlas-games.com for your exclusive discount on feng shui, over the edge, and mini mythos products. Then use the coupon code KENANDROBIN23 at checkout. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the friendly confines of the gaming hut, where the confines, Robin, are perhaps a little more confined. <laughs> the, the confines really come into it this week. They really come in. Well, that's what that's called laying pipe, Robin. We, we've set this up all for the eventual and inevitable, perhaps, question of beloved Patreon backer Walter Manbeck, who asks... Adventures in a physically limited setting like Bullet Train or 1899 on Netflix can be a problem with players wanting to escape the confines to shortcut the scenario. What are good constraints to avoid making the players not feel forced to stay on the train or the ship? And I think, to begin with, Brad Pitt is absolutely forced to stay on the train. That's half the jokes in yeah, Bullet there's Train. there's always the, the premise of a confined space. It's always set up that way because that's an obvious question. Right, yeah. The, the mysterious storm that socks in the island and a boat yeah. can't get there in time or you're all on a plane already and so good luck getting off of it or whatever, you, right? You're on a ship in the ocean. The ocean will kill you. Mm -hmm. So I guess the question is how to make the players not resent the premise. Mm -hmm. and so, Unlike us resenting the premise of the question. Right. I don't resent this question at all because it's a, it's actually a quite good problem that people run into a lot. And mm -hmm. it does, of course, deal with premise rejection. So the first thing you can do is play one of the gumshoe games with drives, which is to say you can cheat mm -hmm. because that rule requires each player to specify the sort of thing that keeps them in the interesting trouble of the scenario. And so you can simply say to them, well, you're talking about getting off the train at the next stop, but you're gung-ho. So would a gung-ho person get off the train at the next stop? No. Explain to me why you're being gung-ho keeps you on the train. And so that is, in a way, forcing the players to accept the premise. But in another way, it's reminding them that accepting the premise is part of the deal, part of the arrangement. Right. Um, you may have players who never want to play this kind of scenario. You don't want to discover that when you set up the scenario. But the other part of it, Ken, as you uh, were beginning to outline, is that the characters always have very good reason to remain in the space. And the reason is that's where the fun is. Right. So if you're making the leaving the confined space seem more fun than staying in it, the you know meta answer, I guess, is make sure they know that's where the fun is. Yeah. I mean, part of it, I think, is the difference 
between a scenario or a couple of sessions and a whole game. If in the scenario you're in one situation, oh, we went down into the ghoul tunnels, now we have to get out, but getting out is the adventure. We did that on ourselves. That's cool. We got on a boat. There was a storm. Okay, that's on us. But if every single adventure is a confinement, then the players will want to escape from that structure in the same way that if every adventure is a dungeon, sometimes you want to just go to town or have an urban adventure or explore the wilderness or do something else besides dungeoning. And that is a completely natural part of just the rhythm of a campaign. So your story, I feel like, unless you're explicitly set up, we're running a prison break campaign. It's set in a giant magic prison. And that's the premise or the premise is you all live on this island and you have to deal with the vampires or the monsters or whatever's on this island. And no, you can't leave the island because they'll eat your family. And that's the premise. Then if you didn't sell that premise, then the players will jib. But if you sold that premise as part of the game, then that's just part of the game. And as you say, build a character with a strong internal reason to stay on the island, stay in the prison, you know, do whatever else, you know, the whole campaign then can be one or another version of being trapped. But if you're running a seemingly normal Trail of Cthulhu game or a seemingly normal game of any kind, even F20, and every adventure is, oh, you're trapped and you can't leave, then that really does come across, I feel, serially like hosing the players in the way that one adventure where, oh, yeah, you're trapped on a boat. Obviously, it says Cthulhu on the cover. That was going to happen. We get it. Right. And I guess the other thing is to, uh, there is a strong player psychology around wanting to have a sense of freedom mm-hmm. and to be able to do anything at any time and go off in any direction whenever and players in particular who like to go, well, I sense that the GM has prepared a train adventure. So I'm going to get off the train and head over into that forest where you just had to throw away reference. That is something that you have to deal with. And I think especially the key is if the reason that you're on the train is a or whatever the confined space is a negative one that you're just simply trapped there, right? You're cocked on the head and then you wake up on the train. I think you're going to get more kickback than there's something positive. There's a positive reason to be on the train that you, you know, you have to find out what the answer to the mystery is so that yes, technically you can't get off the train because it's going out, you know, so fast that if you'll injure yourself on the way out and then you'll be in the middle of nowhere. But that's not the main reason you're there. It's not just that you're trapped. It's that you're doing something else exciting and something that you can progress toward and feel victories rather than sort of the all or nothing stuck here where I don't want to be. I want to be somewhere else. I think that's the deadly part of any scenario. So you have to make sure that they, and if it is just simply about, okay, yeah, you went into the haunted house and now all the doors have vanished. You have to, I think, present them with the first step in a series of steps that they know lead toward causing the doors to reappear. And Mm -hmm. in horror fiction, the, you know, trope would be, well, they come back at sunup in the morning, but that makes the players say, well, we just have to wait this out. That's not good. But it's like, if you find the key, that means that you'll be able to get out so time to search for the key. And where do you search for this key? So make sure that there is an activity as opposed to the thing that players really fear and hate, which is simply being stuck in a static situation. Yeah, I feel like this goes to your first point of make being in the confinement more fun than not being in the confinement. The train is more fun than, you know, the Kansas Prairie or whatever. Uh, James Bond doesn't get off the Orient Express. He has to stay on the train because it's his mission. But also... There's all manner of cool stuff on this train, unlike, say, Yugoslavia, where he would be thrown off, right? So that's the, I mean, the whole point of having a confined adventure, you would think, is to make it more interesting and compelling and uh, rich and delightful. And the GM should always make that the case. I, I think that the the trouble comes when, as I say, you've got a, a, a sense of sameness or the GM says, oh, nothing's going to happen in this haunted house with no doors until midnight. So you're just all get colder and creepier and everyone loses a health point. And it's like, well, that now I'm mad at you, the GM, because nothing fun was going on, even fun, scary, you know, and and then player uh, ingenuity is turned to ruining the scenario as opposed to solving the scenario. Right. So recently I wrote a confined space 
horror scenario spine for uh, C page XX, which will come out later. And you think you're all alone together in the office tower when suddenly exactly that thing happens. You discover you're trapped there. But then pretty soon you discover that, wait a minute, you thought you were the only people in the building because you came in to commit this heist. Well, actually, there's a whole bunch of people in the building. And that uh, the reason for that is there's people to interact with is that if you are just trapped with other player characters, there's no one new to meet, no one for you to uh, bounce off the GM with, and you're just all the players stuck arguing what to do. So that's classic static situation. So look for ways, even if they're stuck in a place, they're not stuck in a situation, that there's new things that they can go and explore. So they go down to the basement of the haunted house, and well, guess what? There's a whole bunch of more rooms than you thought there could possibly be, dare I say, in a non-Euclidean manner. And you can keep going through those those rooms underneath. And it's like, uh, you know, that old, uh, can you count the square footage in your non-Euclidean torture basement under the, under your house? <laughs> yeah. I mean, everyone's drive is going to be different. And maybe that is a sort of specific drive to uh, invoke. But yeah, I think that the general notion that you need a purpose and you need scenery and you need ideally a, an NPC or some other personality to bounce off of, if not just fight, is, you know, it's one of the, to blow it up a little bit, you say, why do dungeon adventures all pretty much work? And the answer is because, you know, at the bottom of the dungeon, there's going to be a big pile of treasure of some kind or a necromancer that needs snuffing out and then his treasure will be homeless. Because a dungeon is the ultimate confined space. Right. I mean, and it's the or scenario for role-playing. So in a way, this is like asking, you know, what if we had a movie that was about kissing and explosions? And it's like, aren't they all? Isn't every good movie about that? And so the notion of confined spaces, I think, to some extent, don't get in your own head and, and think, oh, I'm ruining everyone's fun. Think I'm just doing a dungeon structurally, but th the dungeon is taking place in a haunted house or on an ocean liner or on the Orient Express or on an uh, airliner or whatever it is. And then whatever you would do for a dungeon, do that for your confined space. And I think you'll find, you know, your own creativity as a GM is going to inform a lot. So because you'll be thinking, oh, well, what else is there? What else is there to do on a plane? And, you know, you can come up with all manner of passengers. Yeah, are there enough things for snakes to do here? Exactly. Could there be a snake on this plane? I'll bet there could be. Right. So the specific MacGuffins and hooks for confined spaces, as you've mentioned, something literally of value. Mm -hmm. You need to find a suitcase, as in a bullet train, mm -hmm. or the hidden jewels, or uh, something that is not uh, necessarily of direct monetary value, but that you will get paid for when you take it back to your client. So get the dossier, get the photographs. So that's one MacGuffin. What's another? Another MacGuffin is there's an enemy in there that you need to chase. They think that they're safe in this isolated spot and you want to prove them wrong. And that's your go after the necromancer, go after the vampire. His coffin is on the train. So you have to go and stake him in his coffin. But of course, all of his uh, Renfields and whatnot and ghouls are also on the train. And so that is what's stopping you from getting off the train because you have to get to the baggage car where his coffin is. That's a, a very fun sort of a, a tight scenario. You can have all manner of enemy folks, or there can be someone on the train or the bu or the bus or whatever it is, the, the place that you need to protect. You know, you're not even necessarily, oh, your uncle who you've never met before the scenario, but maybe someone that you've befriended previously in another scenario, they, you know, send you a message and say, found out this cool thing about this house going in, I'll bring back the proof. And sure enough, the house is the old Dickerson place that's uh, loses its doors at sunset. And you're like, oh, dang it. And there we are. Another piece of MacGuffin is identifying someone, right? Your classic mystery format is mm -hmm. someone has been murdered on the train. And now uh, you can't get off the train because you have to find out uh, who it was who committed the murder. And uh, that keeps you on the train and that keeps you talking to people and interacting with them. It sounds like a pretty good premise. I wonder if anyone will ever take advantage of that one. Well, you know, there's lots and lots of mystery writers, Robin. I'm sure someone will eventually think of that. So I think we've covered the specific MacGuffins. We've covered the uh, meta point. So I think we have succeeded in meeting our goal. We've had a lot of fun in this confined space. Now it's time to break through that space, through this commercial, and see what lies on the other side.
The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders, but these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe 1 to 1 system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need to run a one player, one GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. They can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press web store. Or drive through RPG. The retinal scan that you had to undergo in order to start listening to this segment, the poison-tipped umbrella that you were issued, and the mission that you have decided to accept tell us that you are now in the Tradecraft Hut. And can you and I are in the Tradecraft Hut at the behest of estimable backer Dan L., who says, Recently met someone who came from Cuba to the U.S. through Operation Pedro Pan, or Peter Pan, aside from being obviously fertile ground for Delta Green shenanigans, what kind of gaming possibilities does this operation and its aftermath offer the discerning Cuban-American game master? And I think by aside from, he means in addition to, Mm -hmm. I would assume. So tell us, Ken, what was Operation Pedro Pan? I mean, to begin with, there is a bit of a misnomer going on, and perhaps it has even been slightly misshelved hut-wise. There was never a folder in the CIA labeled Operation Peter Pan. That was a name given to the uh, procedure by the newspapers once it got exposed. And it was basically a classic example of public-private partnership. You know, we all remember those, how much fun we had with those. This is just one that was done under Eisenhower back in 1960. Yeah, when I was considering whether this should be shuffled into another hut, it's still a covert thing, so that's why it stayed in trade. Yes, and it still, you know, got up Castro's nose, so that's good. But I have given the impetus there, Castro and his nose. Castro took over Cuba in 1959. He begins to militarize the schools, basically as soon as he does. Um, so kids are going out and doing weapons drill. They're being um, uh, taught military glory type stuff uh, for the revolution, uh, singing We Hate America songs, things like that, like you do when you take over a country. Rumors spread throughout the Cuban population, especially the sort of middle class population who had their kids in the schools, because one of the reasons that the revolution, you know, blew up was nobody got to go to school unnecessarily. So there we are. But the people with kids in school began having the rumor that Castro, having started that way, was eventually just going to abolish parental rights and put kids in big summer camps to mass indoctrinate them and turn them against their bourgeois parents. This rumor was not at all hampered by the CIA. I think people who say the CIA created this rumor give the CIA way too much credit, but certainly once it started flying around, the CIA amplified it on Radio Swan. They faked up a, a draft law that Castro was going to do. They they put their little CIA fingers into it, absolutely. But basically, organically, uh, a bunch of Cuban parents, and again, these are the you know, bourgeois parents mostly begin sending their kids to America unaccompanied. Just you're a grown boy. Get out of Cuba before Castro seizes you. Right. So this is often initially portrayed as being young kids, but it's mostly teens and mostly yeah. teen boys. Right. Yeah. I mean, there are okay, there are absolutely cases where someone was sent with their two younger siblings and said, take care of them. So you have kids as young as six that documentably were part of Pedro Pan. But, you know, again, it's not. They didn't just give little six-year-old Ernesto a ticket to America and say, good luck in Miami, Ernesto. But still, even a teen boy, even a plucky teen boy from Cuba is not necessarily going to be able to handle, you know, living on the streets in Miami. So the Catholic Welfare Bureau in Miami notices all these teenage Cubans wandering around and begins to try and house them. The the, sort of the point person on that is a Catholic father, a priest named Brian O. Walsh. And Father Walsh is meeting with a guy named James Baker, who is not consigliere James Baker from Republican administrations in the future. This is a different guy with the same name, but he ran a school in Cuba. So he was sort of aware 
of what's going on. And Walsh and Baker begin sort of trying to sort out where to put these kids. At the same moment, a fellow named Tracy Voorhees, who was very active in Hungarian refugee resettlement and became the point person in Eisenhower's administration on Cuban refugees, says, there's this situation in Miami. We need to get on top of it instead of uh, looking like idiots when it comes out. So Voorhees and Walsh and Baker all get together and Eisenhower basically agrees to provide seed funding to Catholic Welfare Bureau and a couple of other similar child welfare organizations, mostly in South Florida, but ones with a national scope so that if you've got too many kids in one spot, you could just move them to Ohio or wherever. And that grant basically with the government, you know, paying for foster care for all these kids meant that you could bring more kids. And so the Cuban business exiles all started writing checks to Catholic welfare uh, with a wink and a nod saying, do good with that. And the good that they did was buy plane tickets for more kids because Castro had said no Cuban is allowed to buy a plane ticket out of Cuba. Castro having very early on figured out one of the crippling problems with his revolution is that lots of people didn't like it. Yeah. And speaking of people wanting to leave confined spaces. Exactly. And so various Catholic charities would then give a parent who expressed interest through the uh, sort of uh, gossip underground. They would give them a plane ticket for their kid. Their kid would get on the plane and go off. And eventually, after 1961, uh, when Castro closed the American embassy for such shenanigans, all they needed was a letter from Father Walsh. They didn't even need a visa to get on the plane. And Eisenhower's administration told all the airlines, those are good. Those are like visas, except a letter from Father Walsh. So, Basically, in January of 61, there was about 6,500 kids as part of this child lift. By uh, September of 1961, we changed the law again. This uh, is now into the Kennedy administration that says, oh, if you're a child minor in America and you're Cuban, you can file a visa application for your parents. And so you can begin to reunify families that way. The um, uh, cover of this operation is blown in the press. The Cleveland plane dealer and the Miami Herald blow it in uh, February and March of 1962. That's when it gets its name, Operation Pedro Pan. By September of 1962, there are about, and the numbers are going to vary because who counts as this operation? Obviously, there was never a list, but the numbers go from 14,000 to 19,000 kids are basically part of this Pedro Pan operation. And then in October of 62 comes the Cuban Missile Crisis, and there are no more flights from Cuba to America, period, end of story. And anyone who wants to get refuge in America has to go through Spain. And Spain agrees to take that over, but it's obviously a vastly more expensive flight. It's much harder to do. And so the operation basically, for all intents and purposes, ends in uh, October of 1962 with the missile crisis. And as sort of a happy ending, in 1965, there is a thaw with Cuba. Uh, they start allowing what's called freedom flights. We called them that. The Cubans, I'm sure, called them treason flights or something. But parents of kids in America could fly to America and reunite the families. And about 90% of the Pedro Pan kids did, in fact, get reunited with their parents by 1972. So, you know, 190 kids is is still too many kids to be wandering the streets of Cleveland. But relatively to, you know, what their other options were, it's not a terrible end point. And again, I emphasize that this was not the United States government doing any of this except writing a few checks to Catholic welfare and making it super easy for kids to get on planes. So, right. But there was a, a cover to be blown. Right. Yeah. Happening but because what they didn't want is for Castro to crack down on letting kids out of Cuba. But of course, by 1962, Castro probably needed hard currency and the dollars that they're using to buy those plane tickets are all going to, you know, fund his little uh, government. So there we are. Right. Right. So the obvious thing that we just want to, I guess, do as an aside is the, the Delta Green aspect to this. And I think the obvious question is, what is it that you want to smuggle out of Cuba that you can put on the person of a teen boy or in the person of a teen boy, if you're a contemptible mythos goo monster. Right. And so that could be, you know, majestic getting something small and portable out of the country and, and into the U S 
Uh, was there something else obvious that occurred to you on that uh, front? Yeah, I mean, you can either have a sort of a positive smuggling where it is, in fact, yes, this is the you know sign of Koth was given to us by our Basque ancestors when we settled. Uh, take it to America. Don't let Castro get his hand on it. And so it's a, you know, hunt the MacGuffin scenario. And it's just we know it was a teenage Cuban boy that had it. That's all the intel we have. Or it can be a bad scenario where under the cover of Pedro Pan, some uh, Shubnagurath goo monster up in the hills injects their stuff into a young teen who is then, you know, shuffled in with Pedro Pan and you have sort of an Andromeda strain type situation where you're hunting down a, a carrier of, of some awful mythos awfulness. And the question could be asked even in Delta Green, did Castro do this on purpose? you know, sort of a, a Mariel Boatlift style thumb in the eye of the Americans to send a mythos poison into the sacred shores of Miami. Right. And and you want to be super careful around immigrants bringing poison. Yeah, so that's not it. Well, if you make it Castro's... You want to make them pod people or, or doppelgangers. Right, or yeah. You, no. you, you make it Castro's, you know, evil plan as opposed to, well, that's just what happens when you let kids yeah. into a free country. They're going to bring Chubnagorath. Right. But I think if, if you make them, you know, monsters that look like human, you right, yeah. an extra little step there. Mm-hmm. What I thought was interesting about this story is, of course... Um, any teenager is going to deeply resent being uprooted and suddenly stuck somewhere without their parents, mm-hmm. particularly a place they don't understand. They don't understand the language. And a lot of the people who came here this way experienced the alienation at first until they, you know, then figured out the system. And there's a number of really prominent people who came through this. But it seems to me that this is the ideal sort of early 60s kids on bike scenario where you've got a bunch of teens who were brought here with Pedro Pan. They're all sort of in a community somewhere. They've been housed someplace, but you know, cause the question in kids on bikes is, well, why don't their parents intervene? Well, their parents are back in Cuba. Yeah. Their parents are right now. um, uh, chopping sugar cane for the revolution. They, they can't be intervening. Right. And their ability to, you know, why don't they trust the authorities? Well, they don't even know how to communicate with the authorities, let alone yeah. trust them. You know, and then they got relocated to, you know, Ohio or some other place that's far away from even a Cuban immigrant support network. And they, the only kids that they have to depend on are the player group, right? That they're the only people that they can trust. And of course, they got transferred to the, you know, Erie, Indiana, Hawkins, Indiana, Twin Peaks equivalent by accident, by, you know, machination, who can say, but. They're, they wind up in one of those towns, one of those Sunnydales, where there's all kind of stuff going on, whether it's occult uh, shenanigans or just standard bubblegum shoe, you know, mean teen type shenanigans. Right. And I think that you would want to look for creatures and situations that evoke the feeling of being orphaned without your parents actually being dead or being isolated. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you could have you know, a monstrous mother ogre or one of those weeping mothers from Latin American mythology who's trying to draw them in and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, take over, you know, the evil mother ogress that you have to uh, avoid. Yeah. The La Llorona could be kind of the big bad in the, in the, in the town. If that's the, if they're looking for a supernatural situation and then that is the genuine temptation is, you know, I kind of do want a mom, even if she's a, a weird ghost mom. Right. Right. And so I think you could also do, I think, a, a one-to-one adventure where you're, you know, you've just been dropped in Miami and then, you know, you're trying to figure out your way and work out what's going on. But there's something on the streets of Miami that's decided that uh, these uh, kids without a support network, they're, they're vulnerable and delicious. And it starts to uh, sort of follow you and you discover that, you know, some of your friends who you expected to find there, they're kind of, they're, they've gone missing and it can be a, a sort of a solo scenario where you uh, hunt for your friends while you're being uh, hunted by the creature that uh, that took them. Yeah, and, and it also makes a fun sort of a character background. Uh, like you say, many notable Americans came out of Pedro Pan, and that could be like your Knights Black Agents character background. It's, you know, you're one of those CIA guys who was from Cuba, but the thing that brought you in was not just hatred of Castro, but you survived a vampire in Miami and killed him when you were a 19 year old or a 17 year old. And that's why you've been, you know, keeping your eyes peeled for uh, vampires this whole time. And you can be the sort of the old pro in a nice black agents team, or depending on when you set your game, it can be a bunch of contemporaneous uh, Elroy era guys that all met a monster in, in Miami and survived. And one of them was a Pedro Pan 
15. That also, of course, works for as the blooding incident for a fall of Delta Green character. If you came into uh, America at age 10 in 1962 and fought the mythos, by 1968, you're absolutely willing to um, uh, join the Marines and uh, lie about your age and go after the mythos for Fall of Delta Green. So now that we've uh, made it a character background or a uh, solo adventure or a Fear Itself Kids on Bikes campaign or Fall of Delta Green, I think we've uh, wrung a lot of gaming potential out of this uh, interesting real story. And we can now move on to see what hot awaits us on the other side of this commercial. The best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast unconfined by underfunding alongside such expansive backers as Hector Trelane, Christian Gronset, Adam Balderstone, Chris Hooning, and Ben Brigoff. The whir of the projector, the smell of the popcorn, the scratch of whatever that is on the floor of the theater, welcome us to the center seats in the center aisle of the Cinema Hut, where once more, uh, our films are beginning to be in color now. Some of them, however, are still in black and white because we're in the science fiction cinema essentials in the great flowering of science fiction cinema, the 1950s. And we're beginning in the middle, not just of the 50s, but in the middle of 1954 with a black and white masterpiece, an absolute, not just a horror essential, but a science fiction essential Ishiro Honda's 1954 Godzilla, a epical work of terror, but also very much a social issue science fiction movie about atomic weapons and to a lesser extent about atomic energy, right? Yes. And so the uh, obligatory thing to say when talking about Godzilla or Gojira, uh, as he's known back home, is... Get the original Japanese version. As much as we all love Raymond Burr, we do not need him explaining Godzilla to us. Right. It's on Criterion, and it is a quite a different film because the addition of Raymond Burr not only adds accessibility, supposedly, for an American audience, but takes out a lot of the darker sequences. And so it is often said about Godzilla, it's like, well, this is, you know, a veiled metaphor for <laughs> recovering from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But if you see the actual original film, it's not veiled at all. It's no. explicitly <laughs> part of the text. Uh, and in fact, Godzilla, who is the essentially incarnates the revenge of nature against the crimes of science and the dropping of the atomic bomb. He's, he's, as you would expect from a giant lizard, somewhat indiscriminate and stops some Hiroshima survivors. So there's a scene where it's like, I survived Hiroshima and now this. Mm -hmm. And we think of Godzilla as being goofy and campy and fun. And again, the Raymond Burr thing takes it a little in that direction, but the original is quite dark and serious and even quite moving at the end when uh, the monster is, uh, spoiler, destroyed, mm -hmm. because we know Godzilla never comes back after that. Right. And yeah, that's it. As, as you say, it is a classic cautionary tale. It is about the unintended consequences of scientific destruction and absolutely belongs in the pinnacle of uh, science fiction cinema. I don't know if we're going to, it may be a long time before we get to another Godzilla film on the list, but yeah. you can assume the presence of all of the other kaiju films, but it's Godzilla is the one that, you know, is you essential. See that yeah. counts. Speaking of radiation, 
making small things bigger and having them attack you. This is not a pinnacle, but it's worth noting as an American creature feature that in a way follows a lot of the same patterns. And it's sort of cool and creepy in its own way. And that's Them by Gordon Douglas from 1954. And in that uh, case, it's ants who've gotten uh, bigger. And if there's there's a number of creatures who I don't want to get bigger and try to eat me, and, and it turns out ants are, are some of them. They're on the list. Leonard Nimoy fans remember that this, I think, is his first or, or one of his very early film appearances. And if you haven't seen them, you may be surprised that it is a little bit stark. Not Godzilla stark, but there is a, a similar tone of, oh my god, what now? This is unstoppable. We are, there's an apocalypticism to them that is less there in, say, Night of the Lepus or any of the other giant monster movies that we all love and enjoy. <laughs> yeah, Night of the Lepus is the complete other end of the spectrum. Right. This movie. And, and again, them is not a masterpiece. I don't even know if I would say it's an essential. I certainly don't even think that Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, which is the first American kaiju movie, is essential. But I think them really sort of sets a tone in a way that 20,000 Fathoms didn't and in the way that you know, it was just the one that did it. And it's, uh, it's worth watching as a document, maybe more than as a piece of cinema, but as a piece of cinema, I'm not going to say it, you know, it, it's a home run, but I think it holds up surprisingly well. Next, we come to a, a British iconic hero being reconfigured from a television serial to uh, the big screen with an American star, not a giant American star <laughs> at that time. It's got Brian Don Levy in the title role in the Quatermass experiment. Uh, this is directed by Val Guest. And it's based on uh, the writing of Nigel Neal. And you see a lot of the uh, DNA of uh, Doctor Who in this. Doctor Who, I guess, is, is definitely not a, a cinema character so much, but it's obviously a huge style of science fiction. And There have been Doctor Who movies, and British science fiction film buffs will say that some of them are essential. This is a lie, but <laughs> Quatermass Experiment as you say, the sort of the template for Doctor Who is absolutely essential. And it is a really great examiner of that combination science fiction and horror question about where does humanity end and monstrosity begin once you've stepped outside, you know, the comforting world of, you know, God or right. the earth or whatever. Right. right. And so plot wise, Quatermass is a rocket scientist. Number of astronauts go up. Only one comes back alive, and that one begins to mutate into a monster, which is why uh, in America, this is originally known as the Creeping Unknown. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there'll be more crater mass to come, but he definitely establishes the combination of science fiction and all the themes you mentioned, and also the idea of an iconic science hero who we haven't uh, seen since our uh, serials with Flash Gordon and uh, Buck Rogers. Uh, next, we come to another one that is an influence, not an essential, but it, the thing that it's influencing is pretty big. Uh, so we need to briefly mention This Island Earth by uh, Joseph M. Newman and Jack Arnold, who will, has posted and will post more essentials. This is a sort of a, a weirdly malformed film in that it begins with scientists on Earth and then they're through a series of weird and gruesome events are hijacked to another planet where they wind up uh, discovering that they're being used to generate more uranium for this war of this one uh, planet, Metaluna, against another planet. And there's fights with meteors. And there's two reasons to mention this. One is that the bug-eyed monster, the Metaluna mutant, is a classic monster design. Uh, and he's fun. But also, the visual style is a heavy precursor to, speaking of television series, Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And the look and feel, and even sort of the kind of moral dilemma in sort of a weird, odd, half-realized way, is sort of prototypical Star Trek. It's just, instead of arriving on the planet by a spaceship, they're shanghaied from Earth. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really have anything to add. When I saw This Island Earth, I thought, well, that certainly was a movie. It is important because it's, I believe, the first scene set on an extraterrestrial, rather extrasolar planet in cinema. So something had to be first and that was it. I sort of wish that it was a movie we're going to get to either at the end of today or the next segment, but you can't always, you know, the first isn't always the best, I guess, well, is, is the message of this island earth. So I, I think we're, we've come to something where we're going to, well, certainly I'm going to recommend both versions of a classic novel when they uh, come to the screen. And the first one is in 1956. This is George Orwell's 1984, uh, directed by Michael O'Brien. This is a pretty straight, 
laced adaptation. It's got a bit of a 50s noir aspect to it, but it's a portrait of the dangers of totalitarianism, uh, sort of at the peak of Cold War uh, paranoia, and is a, a well-executed version of a relatively newer, at that time, classic science fiction novel. Yeah, the sort of the weight of the novel on adaptations of this movie is, I think, stronger than some novels. And I, I feel like the adapters are taking different, you know, choices. They're, they're less willing to sort of blow up the cinematic possibilities of the novel in the way that they are for War of the Worlds or Island of Dr. Moreau or any of the other movies that are made from novels. With 1984, there is a, a sort of a reverence for the text that maybe makes the movies less successful than they could be. But of course, that same sense of being stultified and confined, I guess it, it certainly works for the movie. I, I enjoy both of the 1984s that we're going to talk about, but I don't know that I look at them even as, as fondly as I do Island of Dr. Moreau, uh, Island of Lost Souls. Right. Well, in a way, if you're looking on 1984 fondly, it's failed. Yeah, right. I mean, in a way, yes. But I, I think that watching the film is sort of in that uncanny valley of not pleasant enough to be fun and not unpleasant enough in a different way to be artistically interesting to me. I, I, I sort of my, you know, response to the film and I, the only explanation I have, because again, technically it's, it's a, it's a, it's a good film. It, it works. The, the acting is good. You can't really argue with the story. There's just something about the quality of it that I, I feel like is, um, a little uh, uh, straightjacketed. Well, again, uh, that's definitely, you know, yeah. a, a con confined space. And the importance of it is it's the first fully realized dystopia with a recognizable Earth politics. And mm -hmm. as someone I know says, start with Earth. Right. And yes. uh, 1984 definitely does that. Ken, I think you've got a title in here that I'm not even sure I've seen much, let alone uh, recommend. So tell us about Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Well, Okay. You may not have seen the whole movie, but I guarantee you've seen the shot in which the flying saucer, the titular flying saucer of, of many, crashes into the U.S. Capitol. That is a absolute standard, seen a million times in every clip show shot. And Earth versus the Flying Saucers is War of the Worlds remade on a fifth the budget and with someone saying, flying saucers are big, let's make them flying saucers, and also, let's let humans beat these aliens, not stupid bacteria. So, in a way, this is the father of Independence Day, in that once more, it's a ridiculous technical MacGuffin that we figure out how to beat the flying saucers. Well, at least but, it's not water. But I will, yes, no, it is not the worst way to, to fight off aliens in the history of film. This is absolutely correct. It is very much sort of a serial adventure it's, uh, you know, heroic jut-jawed scientists doing heroic jut-jawed things. The alien attacks absolutely must have killed in every drive-in in America in 1956. They still worked on the small screen in 1970s Oklahoma City. I promise you that. So in terms of movies that are not really cinematically great, but nonetheless made a hugely visceral impression, not just on me, but obviously on Roland Emmerich. I feel like Earth versus the Flying Saucers is at least worthy of consideration in the same breath as, say, uh, them or some of the other films that we, that we talk about that absolutely set a tone. And I think Earth versus the Flying Saucers is exactly, you know, if you put a dot down for every thing that you think is this 50 science fiction, Earth versus the Flying Saucers is bang in the middle of what you think of. And it is, you know, you are never bored when you're watching Earth versus the Flying Saucers. I can't say that you're elevated or made a better person in any way, but by golly, I think it works. And uh, to end this segment, a huge acknowledged classic and one that begins the pattern that we're going to see more and more in later science fiction, which is the X in space, where this is not just a science fiction film, although it is very much one, but it is also another genre of film wearing the trappings of science fiction. And in this case, Forbidden Planet from 1956 by Fred Wilcox, it's Shakespeare in space. It's the Tempest. Yep. So a crew of uh, space explorers goes to the planet Altair 4. They meet the Prospero equivalent. They meet his fetching daughter, Ariel. And of course, the robot, as he is billed in this movie. Later, he'll be known uh, by the name Robbie the Robot, because I guess when you're a robot, you don't have a great agent the first time and he messes up your billing. So this is 
also a film that I would recommend for its atmosphere, for the sense of enormous space and loneliness and solitude in the sets that just seem to go on forever. So it is a uh, not only a Shakespearean literary adaptation, but it is a evocative look with, with a whole Freudian thing in the middle, which I guess you'll argue with. And this sort of sense of uh, of expanse and just uh, empty space being an alien thing. I will not argue with it because the Freudianism is just a paper cover over Calvinism. <laughs> <laughs> the, the monster of the id is just original sin all over again, Robin. And you know it and I know it. And Fred Wilcox knew it. This is a film that is an absolute masterpiece. It is if we were making if we we're doing this in one segment, Robin, it would go Metropolis Forbidden Planet. That's where we are. It is the first film to show humans commanding a spaceship that goes past the solar system. It is the first film with an electronic score. It is the first science fiction film to be shot in Cinemascope in any kind of big A-list value. Even War of the Worlds, I don't think, was in Cinemascope. It is a absolute masterpiece, as you say, of, of set design, the animation uh, with the uh, monster from the id and the ray guns and the ship landing is all done by Disney animators at great expense. It was done by MGM with all of the lush camera work that was uh, their trademark at the time. It is also a template for Star Trek, even more so, I would argue, than This Island Earth is. Certainly Roddenberry told all of his team to watch Forbidden Planet and then denied it because he was Gene Roddenberry. But it, it's definitely a almost like an uncredited pilot of Star Trek. And certainly Star Trek themselves ripped it off in Requiem for Methuselah, as well as on a lesser level all over the, the history of the franchise. But it is fundamentally the music and the set design and the story elevate it to a, a legitimate masterpiece of cinema. It is one of the greatest movies period of the 1950s. And this, despite, you know, a, a literally bottom of the barrel cast, uh, Leslie Nielsen had been in, I think two movies and yes, Francis this is the early serious Leslie Nielsen, right? Before his turn to comedy later. And Francis was there. This was her first big ingenue part. And Walter Pidgeon hated the fact that he was in a science fiction, as he thought B picture, it wound up with an A picture budget, but he hated the movie. He hated being in it. And that surly self-hatred really powers his performances. Dr. Morbius. And it is a, it is a real juicy, juicy movie. Uh, there's a lovely Blu-ray, uh, reconstruction of it. It is well worth watching. And the weird all electronic soundtrack, even now sounds futury in a way that most things from 1956 do not. Well, I think our future, however, is going to be to close up the uh, cinema essentials for another episode. We'll be back with more films from 1956. But now let's uh, move on to our own science fictional conveyance, Ken's Time Machine, on the other side of this commercial. In Delta Green... Cosmic Terror meets Modern Conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the nirvana of Nyarlatha Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. Yes, indeed. We're hearing the whirring of chronotons and the clacking of time gears because here we are with Ken's time machine and do to its recent policy, Ken, of sending you on missions with very, very complicated, thick briefing papers 
some wag at Time Incorporated has decided to wonder, I have to admit, a somewhat open-ended fashion, what intervention in the affair of the cards would most improve the time stream? And so I guess the first thing we want to say is that this, this happens in 1905. Basically, it is a scandal within the French political and military establishment. And it follows on. It's sort of a inverted sequel to the Dreyfus Affair, which we talked about in episode 191. So if you're feeling like a chronological completist, you might want to go back to that and refresh your memory on what the Dreyfus Affair is all about, speaking of very complicated stories. Uh, and now it's Dreyfus II, the Revenge, otherwise known as the Affair of the Cards, or somewhat comically for English-speaking listeners, the Affair of the Casseroles. Right. So we're going to keep saying cards, Affair of the Cards. Yeah. Okay. The Affair of the Cards basically begins when the left, broadly speaking, the pro-Dreyfusard movement, on the back of the anti-Dreyfusard's uh, contemptible behavior, gets into power. And the prime minister appoints a fellow named General Louis André to become minister of war. And one of his jobs is to weed out all of the reactionary anti-Dreyfusard members of the military who basically hamstrung France's national security and railroaded Dreyfus, as was revealed in very recent uh, memory to all of France. So. To do so, he meets with the head of the Grand Orient Lodge, the dominant lodge of French Freemasonry, and he says, Freemasons, you hate the Catholic Church. You're for the Republic. You don't want the Empire or the Monarchs to get back in. That's You're against that. We need you, as good Frenchmen, to spy on every member of the French military and give us a political reliability rating for them. Right, because in France, yeah. the, the Masons are not the sort of quaint lodge members that we think of in the Anglo countries where it's just an excuse for someone to tell Rudyard Kipling their story on a train or to, you know, have a local business association. The Masons, as conspiracy theory would have it, in fact, are a giant political force. Right. And again, this is because in the French Revolution, French Masonry had to make a literally life or death choice between support the revolution or support the monarchs. And they supported the revolution by and large, certainly the grand Orient did. So this is the political background of masonry. So the masons begin to work through a, uh, a French general staff captain, Henri Moulin, who was a Freemason. He works under the head of the general staff, which is a guy named general Persson. Moulin and Persson get up each other's nose immediately. But Moulin is the guy in charge of the, giant card index. Right. So when it's the fair of the cards, it's not fair of playing cards or tarot cards. It's right. index cards. It's index cards, the fiches as they called them. And he sets up the data and sets up the system and wrong think officers, officers who are too Catholic officers who are too monarchist officers who are too nationalist as variously defined. They go to the Carthage file, which is from Cato, the elders Carthage must be destroyed and right thinking officers go to the, which is means left officers. Right, yes. Uh, Right-thinking, left-thinking officers go to Corinth, which is from a Horace quote, which is, not everyone gets to go to Corinth. So, right. So, if you're going to blackball people, use classical references. Classical references. It's very cool. So, he sets up this structure, and then in March of 1901, Andre consolidates all promotion, demotion, and dismissal authority in the ministry takes it away from the army. It used to be that army review boards would do this, obviously, to Andre. If the review boards are made up of uh, Carthage types, that doesn't help. So he begins to apply these political criteria to all promotion, demotion, and dismissal decisions. Furthermore, there are more strings to his bow. He begins encouraging officers to inform on each other anonymously so that those anonymous denunciations can be used as evidence for the cards. Uh, his nephew, another guy named Andre, keeps those files. So it's a separate program from the straight up Freemason cards. But, you know, Andre sees all the cards. Now, a Mason named Emil Combs becomes prime minister. He is even lefter than Waldeck Rousseau. And Andre comes and he briefs him and Combs says, absolutely, let's do it. Also, Let's take care of military prisons and the military colleges. And they set up a separate Masonic brotherhood called the Brotherhood of Armies of Land and Sea. Um, they run their own internal intelligence network 
on not just all the military officers in the field, but all the people who are writing the curriculum and what are they teaching at military academies and all of that. Then they say, we need more information. So they go to all the prefectural governments in France and they say, now your job is to report on all the military officers about their political reliability because we can't have them, you know, going against France and some prefectures, which are run by conservative governments say, yeah, we'll get right on that. But most of the prefectures fall in line because that's how civil service works. And they start sending yet more dossiers up. So we've got now a lot of cards from a lot of sources. This is the last straw for even some of his own staff and some of his own cabinet. And they protest because anonymous denunciations are against the honor of France. And Andre says, I hear and understand your concerns and you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then he, then he asked uh, why his uh, Twitter wasn't getting enough engagement. And then fired exactly. Somebody else. And so the fired uh, member of the cabinet, Captain Humbert, just says, all right, I guess I'm fired. And so he's, whatever someone says, how come you got fired from the cabinet? He says, well, it's a long story. Settle in. And he says everything I just said. Right. Because uh, apparently no NDAs. In <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's hard to do it uh, because it's not like Humbert is like, what are you going to do? Inform on me? Am I going to get fired? So the chief of staff begins to smell the betrayal in the wind and flips. He tells everything to the old prime minister, Waldeck Rousseau, who says, well, when I set up this spy network, I didn't mean a spy spy network. I didn't mean anonymous informants. That's against my morality. Yeah, there's a certain point at which this would start to degrade military readiness. <laughs> I feel like this is a problem. So now there is uh, the leaks are beginning to spread out. Uh, June of 1904, a deputy in the House of Deputies accuses the Grand Orient as an occult agency for the surveillance of civil servants. I just love that quote. In 1904, one of the clerks in the office copies out a bunch of the files and sells them to the church. Because, of course, being a pro-Catholic, being a clerical officer is grounds for, you know, dismissal or freezing in place. The church then leaks it to their own investigators. Right. Because the church is also very involved in temporal affairs at this period of French yes, history. Right. And many previous ones as well. Of course. <laughs> yes, right. And is very much against the anti-clerical ideals of the revolution for what would seem to be obvious reasons. Umbert is now leaking documents to nationalist right-wing deputies and questions are being raised in the House of Deputies. Andre tries to cover it up by ordering all the ministry files destroyed and forcing Molan to resign. The Masons, however, publicly say, you know, it's it's an early version of the it's not happening, but of course we needed to make it happen defense. So the, the Masons are out there saying, we're happy to do it. We'd do it again. We'd do it twice. And so there is a vote in yeah, the those, those Masons in their glory hogging, getting you all in trouble with yeah, their hate to do it. <laughs> argument. So there's a big vote, basically a vote of no confidence in the government on November 4th. And at that vote, they've called Andre in to testify. And a nationalist deputy named Civiton slaps General Andre twice, just right there, bang in the well of the house. And the government wins by two votes. This is on November 4th. But the scandal is now uncontainable. There's been slapping combs. The prime minister forces Andre to resign. Molan, meanwhile, has filed his resignation, maybe with an officer that he looked at on the cards who was not reliable. And his resignation never got processed. So he says, well, I'm not withdrawing anymore. I'm not Bring resigning. Me the incompetent laggard file, yes, please. You, you have to court-martial me to get me to leave. And that, of course, means an open trial, which means the Dreyfus affair all again, only with, as you imply, the Dreyfusards being the bad guys and the anti-Dreyfusards being the good guys. This is a situation the left will not stand. There's petitions to get the Legion of Honor expel informers because this is a, a big deal. Combs finally has to resign in 1905. There's a compromise ministry put in place, again, of the left. Milan publishes a book, blowing the whole thing up, and then everyone gets bigger things to worry about. The government weathers the scandal. Milan is sent to Senegal on the, well, if you don't resign, go to Senegal policy. The Masons are out of it, but the card file system and the demoting people for wrong think system continues until at least 1913. Right. And so this brings us to the question of what would you do if you arrived there at any point in this story in your time machine? I'm sure you'll tell us at what point you choose to arrive. What is the most efficacious thing you can do to the time stream to alter the affair of the cards? Well, I'll tell you, this is two things that I think are pretty efficacious. The, 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 the thing that I would do 
is that I would stop Civiton from slapping General Andre because it is sympathy for General Andre that keeps the government barely in power on that first vote of no confidence. There's lots of moderate leftists who say, well, I don't know if I signed up for a surveillance state and lots of other left party members that said surveillance states are necessary. We have to be totalitarians in pursuit of the Republic, which again, same argument they had in the 1790s, but they keep having it. And so the the government survives basically because there's enough moderates that say, well, I don't like surveillance states and totalitarianism, but I can't abide slapping. Right. Because two slaps is two slaps is too many. A a duel except dueling is not a thing anymore. Right. Well, it it is sort of a thing, but that's a different thing. The thing is, if you duel, then people make fun of you for being a reactionary officer who deserves their, the, a check mark on their card. So it was sort of a, a a funny bit that Slavaton was doing, but the larger point was that's what keeps the uh, Combs government in power. Right. So, so what is Saivaton's drink? You're using, you're drinking him under the table of Burgundy, absinthe? I, I, I believe we are going to, well, we, we, he still needs to show up to cast one of the votes, but I think that we can definitely have him super hungover. He's a nationalist, so he's not drinking absinthe, but again, the day I can't drink a French deputy under the table on even brandy will be a, a day that I have to resign myself. And not go to Senegal. In yeah, time you've, you've recovered your blood. You can do this. Again. Right, exactly. So you just have Saivaton really hung over and he just sits there at his desk holding his head and he doesn't slap anybody. The Combs government loses and a broadly right ministry comes in. And I think this has two good effects. One, it teaches the French left that no siding with totalitarian states is bad and maybe they won't do that when they have the choice of siding with or not siding with Stalinism in the thirties. And if you wind up as this bank shot, getting a anti-totalitarian Sartre who never breaks with Camus, I think you have some really good effects, not just in French intellectual culture, but in global intellectual culture, because you have more Camus and less of our timeline Sartre. And you get a little more, you know, sense of, of actually, you know, if you, if you believe in your morals so much, Follow your morals. Do that thing. I think that would be a good thing. And it certainly would be good for, you know, French intellectual history. The other thing that it would do is advance the careers of Ferdinand Foch and Philippe Patin so that by World War One time, Foch, the best tactician in the French army, and Patin, the best leader of men in the French army, are actually in positions of responsible command <laughs> and because they of course got right because if you tear your army apart with internal division and right, forming yeah. and only pick one political tendency whichever tendency that is you're ruling out at least half of the people who might know what they're doing when <laughs> actual shooting starts right exactly and uh, there had to be a giant purge of the french generals at the beginning of the war joffrey famously you know called it the hecatomb of the generals where they all got human sacrificed you know i think a bunch of them shot themselves in in disgrace it was awful and it's because they had this bunch of ideologically left-thinking deadwood at the top of their general command so foch and patin happening to be the two best generals france had in world war one both having been held back by the card system, if they start getting their promotions that they're due in 1904, by 1914, I think that there is a at least an outside chance that you have France stopping the Germans even earlier than the Marne, or certainly that the response does not become, well, let's kill three million men and pretend it was a good idea, uh, which Patan, of course, very much, you know, hated Nivelle, hated that whole structure, but couldn't do anything until he won Verdun. So not to say that Patan, you know, is an unalloyed good, as we all know, he's truckles under the Nazis in 1940, bad Patan, but in 1914, he's still good Patan. This is like Benedict Arnold apres treason. Well, and maybe if he'd won more glory, he would it, it, Exactly. Well, he, he won all the glory you could. I really right. think it was just being 80 and tired of dealing with stuff. But anyway. Well, maybe if he didn't have a chip on his shoulder. <laughs> well, maybe if he'd been allowed to win World War I decisively in 1914 and 15, we wouldn't have had this problem with Hitler. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think, you know, a, a simultaneous French intellectual regime that suffers totalitarianism much less, and even if it's technically on your side, and a French military regime that thumps the Germans in the nose and wins World War I decisively and early without, you know, the mass slaughter and mass mutinies. I feel like those are two things worth trying. And worst case scenario, 
a bunch of real self-righteous scumbags get voted out of office in 1904. So, so uh, gaming applications, if this is 10 years too late for the core timeline of the Yellow King role-playing game uh, Paris segment, but you could do a scenario, maybe a callback scenario after your main thing where the, you get the band back together 10 years later and the Americans all go back to Paris and become enmeshed with this or it just sort of goes on in the background. And certainly the idea that there's an occult conspiracy penetrating the military and finding people that it doesn't want and chucking them out sort of changes its tenor when it's uh, the yellow sign conspiracy instead mm -hmm. of the uh, Masons. Maybe this can be Monsieur Wilde is there practicing for the 1920 takeover in America. So you could sort of do a bridging scenario there or, you know, call back to it later. And I guess otherwise it might also be just sort of a fun one-to-one -one game in which you are solving some sort of mystery as this is going on in the uh, background. And you might even have like a uh, an old-timey solo ops where you're an agent trying to uh, root out the vampires who are secretly uh, decided for their own reasons to uh, wreck the French military by setting the two uh, sides against each other. And the other thing that it can provide you is backstory because the cards were theoretically burned, but lots of copies were kept, some of them by the church, some of them by other bureaucrats. You can absolutely have a, them tracking another conspiracy besides the conspiracy of going to a Jesuit school or having a duh in your name. And this conspiracy is the real conspiracy. It's the Grail conspiracy, the Yellow Sign conspiracy, or the Cthulhu cult, or whatever. And those records, those demonstrate the roots of the conspiracy in whenever your game's present day is. So in Fall of Delta Green, you could be investigating these old uh, generals and their families for their occult leanings, and you have to get at that information or you could, you know, flip it on its head and say that uh, Molan was actually in league with the yellow sign and he was promoting people who were members of the cult. And that's why, you know, in our present day, whenever that is, France is riddled with Carcosan agents of influence uh, in the same way that the British Secret Service was riddled with communists. It could be a fun 1968 spy story where you're rooting out the the horrible, you know, ennui-inducing uh, cult of Hastur from the French military and uh, spy services while simultaneously having to deal with the May of 68. And is this the final, you know, exaltation of Hastur laid down by these uh, cultists in 1904? Well, uh, you know that if uh, something really horrible happens, it will be due to index cards. Mm -hmm. So on that terrifying note, we can exit the podcast for another week, but we'll be back a mere seven days from today with uh, more of the similar. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Prevent underfunding from stomping this podcast like it was Tokyo by joining such authentic backers as Dwayne Krogolski, Grace St. Quentin, Jay Moore, Josh King, and Keelan O'Hay. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our new classic design, Unicorn with a Better Armor class. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.